If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, maybe even if you're just curious about Jesus, not really a follower yet, um, you probably struggle to understand parts of who Jesus really is. And maybe especially when we read a story like this in the Bible. You see, most of us don't have any problem thinking about Jesus being fully God. And uh, we translate that to thinking that Jesus is Superman, you know, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Nothing ever bothers him, right? He's, he can, you know, stand there and the bullets fly off his chest. But then we read a story like this and we're confronted with the fact that Jesus was also fully human. I mean, does he sound like Superman in this story? I don't think so. And I think that's why this story is in the Bible. It reminds us of who Jesus really is. He is fully God and he is fully man. Now, we're talking about the final hours of Jesus' life, and so this story takes place between the Last Supper of Jesus and between Judas coming to betray him. Uh, the disciples have uh, had the Last Supper. Judas has left. Now they are on a journey. They're going down out of the city, down the Kidron Brook, about three-quarters of a mile south of Jerusalem to a garden called Gethsemane. On the way, Jesus will tell them, all of you are going to fall away. And of course, they all say, no, Lord, we will die with you. And we're going to see how that turns out. And, and then they get to this garden, and Jesus tells uh, eight of the disciples, you stay here. And then he tells Peter, James, and John, you come on a little farther with me. And this is where our story picks up. Uh, so Jesus said to his disciples, uh, went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And Jesus took Peter and the sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now you can understand why Jesus felt the need to pray. He knows that he is about to die. But this doesn't quite fit with the picture we have of Jesus as Superman. He is sorrowful, even to the point of death. And we're told that his, his soul is agitated. He is sad. What, what makes people this sad? I, this is not the sadness that we experience because it's Sunday and we can't go to Chick-fil-A. This is sadness at a whole different level. This is sadness when you lose something or someone that is very, very important to you. And it can also happen when you are at the point of losing that person. If you've ever sat beside the bedside of someone you love, it, just as they're ready to pass away, then you have felt something like what Jesus is feeling. Uh, Think about everything he's about to lose. He's about to die, that's hard. He's about to lose his dignity. I mean, you've never seen an accurate picture of Jesus is dying on the cross because people were crucified naked. That was especially troubling for a Jew, which was a part of a very modest society. He is going to lose his friends, they're all gonna run away. But most of all, he's gonna lose his connection with his heavenly father. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I still long for connection with people who are not there anymore. I've, I've stood beside the graves of my, 
my mother and my father and my brother and my sister, and I just long for a connection with them again. I want to hear their voice one more time. One more time, I just want them to tell me the stories that I heard over and over as a child, and I don't have that connection. And Jesus is gonna lose that connection with his heavenly father, why? Why is this happening? Well, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us, I'm sorry, I have something under my contact. That's not what 1 Peter 2, 24 says. <laughs> um, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, when Jesus died on the cross, sin came to him like steel to a magnet. All of my sins and all of your sins came to Jesus that day. And Jesus knows this is coming. So I just want you to think about my sins and your sins. That means all of our greed, all of our lust, all of our anger, all of our sloth, all of our envy, it all goes to Jesus. And not just mine and yours, but all of that that exists in the world. It all goes to Jesus. Can you imagine what that started to feel like? I mean, because we're talking about the sins of the rapists and the murderers and the thieves. We're talking about the sins of, of people like Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Putin. We're talking about the sins of, of people like Jefferson and Lincoln and Lee, the sins of people like Nixon and, and, and Reagan and, and Clinton and Bush and Obama and Trump, all of those sins come to him. All the sins of ruthless kings and fierce warriors who conquer and they don't care about life. All the sins of the world come on Jesus. Do you think that might make you feel disconnected from your heavenly father? And Jesus is gathering all this sin and he feels that distance that's associated with sin. You know that distance. It's the distance that you feel when you sin, maybe just that simple sin, and, and, and yet you can feel the distance start to open up between you and your heavenly Father, and you don't like it, but you don't know quite what to do about it. Jesus is gonna feel all the distance that all the sin in the world for all time will create. How disconnected do you think he felt from his heavenly Father? Don't, don't you remember? that on the cross he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think Jesus felt the distance. It's the cry of pain, and if you know that pain is coming, just like Jesus, you'd be sad too. And from Jesus' own lips, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Literally, in Greek, it says, my soul is away from home. You ever been away from home? I know some of you have to deal with that on a regular basis. You're deployed. You get homesick. You just long for your own bed. You long for your own place. You long for your own comfort. Jesus, I think, is telling us, hey, I've lived among the broken people, but now I'm going to live in their brokenness. You understand now, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. 
He is not a super being. He's not impervious to emotion. He is human just like you and just like me. And if you've ever felt sadness because you feel disconnected from someone, Jesus has been there. If you have ever felt overwhelmed because you're getting blamed for things that other people have done, Jesus has been there. If you've ever been punished for something you didn't do, Jesus has been there. If you have ever been crushed by the weight of of a responsibility that's not yours to carry, Jesus has been there. He understands but he's also teaching us it's not a sin to be overwhelmed with sorrow. And this is a time when Jesus needs someone to be with him. So he invites Peter, James, and John. James and John are the sons of Zebedee to go with him a little ways. These are the same three that saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember? That is the moment, this amazing moment when Jesus is revealed to be fully God They see him in all of his glory. Moses and Elijah show up to talk to him. You remember Peter saying, this is great. This must be what heaven's like. Let's build tents and stay here. And now the same three are gonna see Jesus fully human, weighed down by emotion, crushed by sadness. And Jesus says, remain here with me and keep watch. What does that mean? It may be that Jesus is saying, hey, watch out for Judas, he's coming. I think Jesus is simply saying, I'm going through a really tough time. I need my friends with me. I need the three guys I trust most with me. And we often talk about Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. This is the time when Jesus says, I need you to be with me. Does Jesus say that to us? Yes, he does. This should really challenge your ideas about prayer. I think a lot of times we pray and we think, okay, God, here's my problems, here's my sins, forgive those, solve the problems, do the miracles, thanks, catch up with you later. What about joining your heart with God? What about being there with God? See, this is why we need to pray for the things that break Jesus' heart. Why I think we need to pray for and take action on feeding the hungry, caring for the poor, visiting the prisoner, caring for the sick. We need to show up where Jesus' heart is breaking. That's why you need to pray about the whole war between Russia and Ukraine. Do you think that's God's will? If it's breaking God's heart, should it break yours? Should you pray about it? That's the least we can do. And honestly, I think this is why you need a group of friends, faith friends, Be in a life group so that you can actually have people to pray with you when you're going through these moments. And you may say, well, I haven't gone through those moments. At the risk of sounding like Master Yoda, you will. You will. Do you have someone that you can pray with and will pray with you in these awful moments when the Sorrow threatens to overwhelm your soul. The story goes on in verse 39. Going a little further, 
He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he found them again sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Now, see, I think we can only take this prayer seriously if we take Jesus' emotions seriously. I mean, if, if Jesus didn't really feel sorrow unto the point of death, why is he praying a prayer that goes like this, if it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. So there's two parts of this prayer. This is the first part. If it is possible, may this cup pass. What's the cup? <coughs> You remember earlier in the chapter, we talked about this two weeks ago, during the Last Supper, Jesus says, or Jesus took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, now just think with me. Think with me. What does that mean? Jesus knew the cup meant his blood, which meant his death. What's Jesus asking his heavenly Father for? If it's possible, how about not letting me die? If it's possible, how about not letting it be my blood that is shed? And now you understand the struggle of Jesus. Now, because Jesus is Jesus, right? We think, hey, resisting temptation must have been easy for him. Obedience must have come easy for Jesus, right? Does this sound like it's coming easy to, to you? You know, Heavenly Father, if it is possible, the struggle is real. So if you ever had, have had struggle obeying your Heavenly Father, if you've ever had struggle to resist a temptation, will you remember Jesus' struggle too? Now, how do we know what Jesus prayed? How do we know? Scholars think that uh, Peter must have stayed awake for a little while before he fell asleep. And he heard Jesus pray. That's how we know the prayer. I would not give Peter that much credit. I think it's more of after Jesus was resurrected, we're told repeatedly that he explained everything to his disciples. And I think one of them must have raised his hand and said, what were you praying in the garden? And Jesus told them. And Jesus told them because he wanted them to know that he understood their struggles. Now, there's so much in these verses. You see, Jesus, first of all, is teaching us that not that everything that is possible for God to do, everything that is possible for God to do is not necessarily the will of God to do. This is real important. Because Jesus is saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. 
And Jesus knows his heavenly father. He knows that for him, everything is possible. The New Testament tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. It, it tells us that, that there's reasons why Jesus dies on the cross, but it doesn't really tell us the ultimate question. It's like, well, why? Why is sin not forgiven until blood is shed? And the ultimate answer lies with God. I think, I think, I don't know, so I think, I think God wanted us to know that there was no easy way out for Jesus. I mean, you think about it, God could have just said, abracadabra, your sins are forgiven. Would that have impressed us? His only son dies on a cross, and we struggle to be impressed by that. But something else, I think this is real important. Jesus is teaching us that God does not say yes to every prayer, no matter how good you are. And I, I've talked to people and they say, I keep praying this and I, I think it must mean that I'm just not good enough yet for God to answer my prayer. I want you to think with me, Jesus is perfect. How good is he? And what does God tell him? No. The lesson is you cannot be good enough for God to answer your prayers if it is not in his will. Now the second part of the prayer Yet not as I will, but as you will. Someone has said this prayer sums up the whole Bible. It is the prayer of surrender. It is the prayer that says, I trust God more than I trust my own feelings. I trust God more than I trust whatever's going on in my world. I trust God more than I trust my doubts. I trust God even if there is pain ahead and I know it's coming, I will trust my heavenly Father. And I want you to notice how Jesus addresses God here. This is the only time he does this in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, not our Father, but my Father. Three times. <clears throat> Jesus is trusting his heavenly Father because he is his Father. And maybe that's where you have trouble. You have trouble thinking about God as a good God, as a heavenly Father that you can trust. And, and I think a lot of us, even church people, can think this way. You can grow up in church your whole life and still get the impression that when you give your life to Jesus, all your fun is over. And welcome to a life of misery. And you will be one of those Christians who sit in church and you will sing, joyful, joyful, we adore thee with no joy in your heart. So how do you trust God? How do you trust that God really does want good for you? How do you trust that God really will bring you a better life? Here's a paradox. You will not learn to trust God until you trust God. You will not learn to trust God until you trust God. And you may be saying, well thanks Clay, that's real helpful. And what I mean by this is you've got to start trusting God somewhere. And the truth is you do trust someone or something. A lot of you trust yourself. Some of you trust some friends, maybe your spouse. But you're not ever going to really trust God until you actually start trusting. So maybe, maybe that starts with just a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, show me where you're at work. 
you know, you're not ready yet to cross that line and say, I want to be saved. You're not ready to say, I, I want to follow Jesus. But you can at least pray a prayer like this. Show me where you're at work. And I believe that if you keep an open soul, God will show you where he is at work in and around you and through you because our God is a personal God. And you will see the good he brings and that will help you trust him more and more and then eventually you will trust Jesus. So do you think it was a struggle for Jesus to obey his heavenly father? I think it was. And yet he was still perfect and still the son of God. Dale Bruner, a New Testament scholar, says in this prayer, Jesus is actually fighting for obedience. Do you fight to obey? Listen, listen to how the prayer shifts. You know, Jesus starts out with, if it is possible. But then the second time he prays, what does he pray? If it is not possible, your will be done. You hear the shift? So may, maybe this will help. All right, this is a clock, in case you couldn't know. And let's, let's just say that, that 12 up noon represents God's will for your life. God's perfect will is 12 up noon. When Jesus prays, if it is possible, do you think he's at 12 up noon? I don't think so. I think Jesus was probably down here about 1130. You've got, if it's not, po if it's possible. <laughs> I mean, we're right here and I will go to noon, but can we find another way? And what Jesus does is he keeps praying, right? For however many hours he's there in the garden, he keeps praying until eventually he gets to if it is not possible. But he lands on not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prays until he is surrendered. And what does this teach us? How many of you think that you are at 1130? Well, I sure am not. Y'all tell me when I, you think I should stop. I think I'm probably down here about 515. I mean, because there's so many places in my life I still keep finding, hey, God, uh, my will, not yours, be done. Yeah. So how much do you think I need to pray? All right, enough about me. Let's talk about you. I don't know where you are, but what I heard somebody say two o'clock, here's what I know. Wherever you are, you've got to pray until you line up and you say, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. That is surrender. And it's surrender to the big picture of God's will. See, the big picture of God's will was not for Jesus to avoid pain. The big picture of God's will was for the cup to be taken away from us. The big theological word for this is atonement. Jesus paid what you can't pay. Jesus picked up the check for your sins. 
Jesus said, I will die so you don't have to die. That's how much our heavenly father loves you. And that's why Jesus was willing to let his love for you overcome even his struggle and say, not my will, but yours be done. Now twice, Jesus goes back to check on the disciples. And the first time he finds them asleep, the second time he finds them asleep, and this to me conclusively proves that they are Baptists. Now remember, these are the guys who were saying, we will die for you. And they can't even stay awake for him. But we've all been there, right? You've all known the right thing to do. You've all heard God say to you, hey, here's something I want you to do. And, and the spirit is willing. That's what Jesus actually says. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, your will, your heart, where you make decisions, actually wants to do the right thing. I don't think Peter, James, and John went in there and said, okay, Jesus said to pray, but we're just, we're just gonna kind of take a nap here. I don't think that's what they did. I think they probably started out praying. They probably didn't even know what to pray. Like, Lord, uh, what's one more time that Jesus is not making sense to us? Uh, would you please, uh, I don't know what to pray. And then their eyes get heavy and they fall asleep. Because in our body there are habits and there are physical needs and there's addictions and there's all kinds of stuff that are weak. And that's why I want to encourage you to regularly pray for strength. Remember the prayer that we shared last week? The prayer that goes like this, I can't, you can, I will let you. How often are you praying that prayer and saying, God, I know this is what you want me to do, but I can't. But you can, and I'm going to let you. I've got this sin, I've got this addiction, I, I've got this relationship that needs repair, and God, I can't do it, but you can. I'm going to let you. Now here's the last section. Verse 45, he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. Do, do you hear the change? This is no longer Jesus saying, if it is possible, if it is not possible. Jesus sounds different in these verses. I mean, he sounds confident. He sounds courageous. This is the courage of Jesus. I mean, it starts with his emotions. He has to work through them. And then there is the struggle. But now he has surrendered. And now he has courage. John Calvin, the Reformation theologian, said that now Jesus has found new reserves. The hour has come. He can, he can hear Judas and the mob coming. And look at his statement. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows that Judas is bringing the mob. Jesus knows that death awaits him. And I want you to see this. Here is God, fully God, fully man, in the person of Jesus, the very perfect one. And he comes to earth to save us from our sins and to love us. And what do we do with him? We kill him. Because he threatens us. 
Because if he really is who he says he is, that means our life must change. And the old patterns have to, have to be crumbled and desires for revenge and, and getting even and, and, and thoughts about I'm going to, to use this person for my own means. All of that has to go away. And again, I think this is why many of us do not truly follow Jesus. Because if you do, you know Jesus is going to ask something of you. And you don't trust yet that it really will be good. But what if actually following this model of Jesus, having courageous surrender, leads you to a better life? Would you trust that? Maybe think about it this way. If you courageously surrender to Jesus and say, not my will, but yours be done, how will you feel when you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and in the mirror at night? Now, maybe you've heard this whole message and you're going, so what? So what? what where's, where's? Okay, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to really think about praying this prayer. Heavenly Father, show me where you're at work. Heavenly Father, just show me. Show me where you're at work. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the ultimate prayer. Not my will. Yours be done. And I just want to caution you just real quick. Don't confuse your will with your Heavenly Father's will. Not my will. Yours be done. About 15 years ago, a really good friend of mine was visiting relatives out of state. And um, his son, his only son, was riding in a car with some relatives and they were involved in a very serious accident. And his son was hospitalized, there was trauma, there was internal damage, internal bleeding, and they, they had to take his son to surgery right away. And then he gets to the hospital and I get notified. And, so I call him and I say, how are you? Man, I, I just hate this has happened to you. I'm praying for you. So, so tell me, how, how's it going? I know those are just such plain words, but I was trying to convey to him that I really cared. And he said, right now, Clay, I'm just praying, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. He said, I don't know. I don't even know what to pray. I, I, I don't know if my son is gonna live or die. I don't, know, I don't even know how I feel at this moment. I just know I am praying, thy will be done. Because I'm gonna trust my heavenly father. And I really marveled at my friend because to be honest, if it was my child in that same situation, I would not be praying, thy will be done. I would be hollering at God, my will be done and you fix my boy. And I'm not saying that's a bad prayer to pray. But which prayer do you think will bring you more peace? My will be done. Thy will be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for people who are not yet followers of Jesus. That they would see you at work. 
and I pray, God, that it would lead them toward Jesus. Because I really think it'll help them have a better life. And I want to pray, Father, for those of us who do follow Jesus. I pray that we would pray, thy will be done and really mean it. So thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.